Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Angela McFarlane, Head of the Public Engagement and Learning Team at the Royal Botanical Gardens, discusses the challenges of using digital technology in communication and informal science education. Can I welcome you all to this lecture this evening? I'm Dean Sprokel, I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bath. Um, I just thought I'd introduce this lecture as part of a series of lectures that we're organising here. There's no question about it that research can change people and change the world. <coughs> At the University of Bath, we believe that research in universities should have an impact and should make a difference. We therefore not only seek to promote scientific excellence, but also to use research to address important topics in the world today. The Research in the World series was established last year to provide an opportunity for the university community, invited guests and members of the public, to hear from inspiring people who are engaged with topics that resonate with key areas of our research and scholarship here at the university. The speaker today, Professor Angela McFarlane, is Professor of Education at the University of Bristol, our great neighbour and <laughs> she also leads the public engagement and learning team at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Q. Angela has vast experience in science education as a teacher, a government advisor and a world leading researcher. In particular, her research has focused on the use of digital technologies in science education. Not only that, but Angela also designs educational software. One of these, called Communicat, recently won a European Educational Software Award. It involves a series of multimedia activities based on popular games, software metaphors, and has proved very popular in countries across the world. Her lecture tonight, Q in the Digital Age, will explore the challenges of using digital media to engage a new and global audience with the important science and conservation work at Kew Gardens. Will you join me in welcoming Professor McFarlane? Thank you, Vice Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for coming out on such a cold evening um, to hear my tale of joy. Um, that I've experienced over the last three years since I've been at Kew. There I was, busily, and from my point of view, happily, um, working as head of the Graduate School of Education in Bristol. Um, and I got a phone call out of the blue saying that Kew was looking for somebody to run their education and content areas. Um, and I thought, and they'd been told about me and thought I might be interested. I thought, that's, that's a curious thing. And of course, for a very long time up until that point, my work had been very much around digital media and learning, and in fact, largely in areas like language learning. And many people, including I realised even me to a certain extent, had forgotten that at my core, I am actually a scientist and a science educator. Um, but somebody at Kew had realised that and put two and two together um, and thought I would be a useful person to talk to. And the portfolio is an absolute dream. Um, how many of you have been to Kew? 
few. So you know that Kew has at least one garden, very famous garden, that recently on TripAdvisor voted the world's favourite garden in southwest London. We also have another site. Um, and everyone knows this is a garden, but in fact Kew is a hub of an international research and conservation network working with partners in 54 countries. Um, and it really is a, a literally a hothouse of science. Um, so I thought, well, this is interesting. So what do they want me to do? Do they want me to just kind of run the schools programme? Because although that, you know, that's terribly important, not that exciting. And then they told me that, well, actually, they do have a schools programme, and they have a schools programme for about 80,000 children a year. And I thought, well, that's a, bit, you know, that's a good schools programme. But also, they have a digital media team. We run a publishing company. Um, I'm now responsible for interpretation across the gardens. I'm responsible for communications and marketing. It's, it's a very diverse opportunity, but the really key thing that really kind of got me interested was that we want to take Q forward and start engaging with the public in ways that organisations like Q have not done before, and that's why we want to talk to you. Well, you couldn't resist, could you? So, of course, I had to go and talk to them, and I ended up... Um, working for them. I'm actually seconded from the university at the moment. The university very generously um, allowed Q to buy me from them for a while. It's the closest I'm ever going to come to being a footballer. I'm on transfer. Um, right. Okay. Um, just a, a few words about Q. Um, Q's actually established by Act of Parliament uh, the National Heritage Act covers most of the major museums and galleries, including Kew. And um, I've put up most of our statutory objectives. And the key ones I've highlighted are that we actually are legally obliged to provide instruction and education. But the bit I absolutely love, and which is completely irresistible, is that when people come to Kew, we, by law, have to make sure they have fun. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what the sanction is if they don't have fun, but we have to at least make sure we try. So Q is this amazing melting point, 250 years of history, founded in 1759 by the Princess of Wales, effectively, Princess Augusta. The Princess of Wales Conservatory is named for her, not, uh, by, not, not in fact for the woman who opened it, though I think she may have thought it was at the time. Um, Princess Augusta was the then Princess of Wales, and she uh, was a, an avid gardener and plantswoman. And she employed William Ayton as the first scientific gardener to take charge of the gardens that subsequently became Kew Gardens, and they were then the gardens, and still are, the gardens <coughs> of Kew Palace, which was, of course, the family home of George III. Um, <clears throat> but enough of that. Uh, and the madness and so on. But across our two sites, we have about 2 million visitors a year. Kew Gardens is a World Heritage Site. It has over 40 listed buildings, um, most of which, sadly, are in danger of falling down. Um, but uh, it's, it's quite a, um, a heritage to, to, have to take responsibility for. And now we are just under 50% funded by DEFRA, um, and by the time they finish this current round of cuts, that will probably be slightly less than that. 20 years ago, Q was 95% funded by government. 
Um, so those of you, and everywhere I go, people can tell me they remember coming into Kew for a penny. Okay, that was when Kew was 100% funded by government. Um, the price has gone up a bit as the government subsidy has gone down. Also, Kew has grown enormously because it is a scientific research hub. Um, the growth has been very much on the science side. Um, the two gardens, we have about 300 acres at Kew, slightly less um, at Wakehurst Place, which is down near Gatwick, if you haven't been. And we look after Wakehurst for the National Trust, but um, Kew is a Crown property. Um, science, we have 19 major collections. Um, for those of you who've never um, experienced one, a herbarium is the equivalent of a library for plants. Kew has the largest and um, best organised, apparently, herbarium in the world. Um, Rumour has it that the Paris one has slightly more specimens if they could only find them. Um, but we have 8 million dried specimens in the herbarium. The keeper of the herbarium refers to himself as the man who looks after the dead. All of those specimens um, are, have been collected from all over the world and they are the reference library. They're the British library of the plant world. If you have something and you're not quite sure what it is, wherever you're working in the world, the first thing you want to do to verify the identification is to check it against a specimen at Kew. That's the dead things. We also have 40,000 living taxa in the living collections, seeds in the Millennium Seed Bank, which is the largest conservation project in the world. The seed bank down at Millennium, uh, the Millennium Seed Bank down at Wakehurst Place is the most biodiverse spot on the planet. There are 27,000 species in safe storage in the Millennium Seed Bank. Interestingly, they are from over 50 countries and the seed are owned by the governments of those countries. They are banked at what the project partners call the mothership in West Sussex, but they're also banked in-country, so there is um, a backup system for the whole project. But the seeds actually still belong to the governments of the countries in which they were collected, and Kew has pioneered equitable asset and benefit sharing agreements between UK and um, other governments in a way that was particularly relevant to the recent negotiations in Nagoya. Um, very different from Kew's historical past, um, where Kew wasn't always quite so ethical in the way it exploited the genetic material from other parts of the world. But we have about 250 science staff, and at any time we have about 50 PhD students. So quite large. The, the herbarium, um, that's the main face of the herbarium building, uh, Georgian. Um, the Jodrell Laboratory, a essentially genetics laboratory, one of the newer buildings on campus, and the Millennium Seed Bank itself down at Wakehurst Place. Those are our major sites for science. But we also have the culture and heritage. We have the largest library of botanical art in the world. We have over 250,000 original pieces of artwork um, and counting. Every time someone goes and examines part of the collection, um, particularly for restoration work, they discover things that weren't there, uh, that they didn't know were there, rather. Um, so, for example, the <coughs> image behind this is of the Marianne North Gallery, a rather amazing piece of um, Victoriana. Marianne North herself was a remarkable woman. She travelled around the world on her own 
in the latter half of the 19th century, and she painted almost 900 original paintings of various species of plants in their natural setting. And that was an absolutely pioneering thing to do. Of course, lots of people prior to that had collected specimens, they'd made drawings, they'd made records, but no one had gone and actually looked at plants in their natural setting and captured them in that way. She then came back to um, the, the UK with all of this and uh, built the gallery and donated the paintings to go in it to Kew. Um, so it's very much a, a testament to a, a remarkable woman. We also have a new gallery in its own way, a testament to a rather different remarkable woman, the Shirley Sherwood Gallery. Shirley Sherwood has one of the largest and most impressive contemporary collections of botanical illustration, um, some of which is always on show at Kew alongside part of Kew's own collection, and that's the first time we've been able to share that amazing archive of botanical art with the public in any organised way other than through individual visits to the collection for scholarship. So that was a major step forward in making the collections physically accessible on site. And the sorts of things we've got, um, this is one of the original herbals. Uh, the oldest one we've got actually, not this one, but the oldest one we've got actually goes back to the 14th century. Um, a, a little sketch by Darwin. One thing about Darwin, he may have been utterly brilliant, but he couldn't draw. Um, and this is one of his letters um, I think the archivists who look after the correspondence at Kew have one of the hardest jobs. As you can see, Darwin is, it was nothing if not economical with his resources. Um, as I say, we have over 40 listed buildings and we also um, host major art exhibitions from time to time. So recently we had the Henry Moore exhibition, um, one of the largest collections in one space of Moore sculptures um, for some considerable time. Uh, we had over 80 of them there for six months. Um, 800,000 people came to see them. Uh, the Chihuly exhibition, similarly, in 2005. So, uh, and we have the Economic Botany Collection. The, the Economic Botany Collection is absolutely fascinating. Almost anything you can conceive of that has been made of plant material, there will be an example of it in the Economic Botany Collection. Um, and there's also an on-site museum which shows a full range of both historic and current uses of plant material. Um, and it's always an education particularly for children um, and particularly for urban children who have almost no contact with the natural world to begin to realise just how many of the artefacts around them originated from plant material and just how important plants are to us in our lives. And of course the classic iconic elements, the pagoda um, built in the 18th century as, can you believe, a surprise for Queen Charlotte. Um, she, I'm sure, feigned surprise when she walked to the end of her garden and found the 17-storey pagoda. Um, but it was originally actually surrounded by very large cedar trees, so to be fair, until they got to the higher levels, it wouldn't actually be invisible. Um, and they probably kept her occupied at the north end of the garden. Um, learning, we have a major learning programme across the gardens. As I say, 25% of the botany post-doctoral students in the UK are at Kew. Um, that sounds very impressive, except, of course, it's partly the high percentage because there are a dwindling number 
of people studying particularly taxonomy and systematics of botany. Um, we have over 80,000 school children a year, 4 million visits to our website, um, and we are particularly good at things like plant collecting for beginners. Um, last, uh, in 2009, uh, we launched the Great Plant Hunt, which sent a treasure chest of resources to every UK primary school um, to get them out and about on expeditions as plant hunters following in the footsteps of Darwin, but linking them to modern-day plant hunters who work with the Millennium <coughs> Seed Bank, uh, most of whom look a lot more like Indiana Jones um, and his female counterpart than they do Darwin. Um, and just very quickly to share with you, really I put this slide up simply to try and convey some of the complexity of Q as an organisation. This is one of our latest attempts to try and explain us to ourselves. It's not really meant for external consumption. Um, but it, it tells you about the, the seven strands of Q's work, which collectively we call the Breeding Planet Programme. And at the heart, there is the core <coughs> data and uh, research creating fundamental new knowledge that feeds into um, a program looking at um, which plants are most at, at risk. Uh, we recently, just in time for Nagoya, published the sample red list index, which shows fairly uh, comprehensively that at least one in five plants is currently threatened with extinction. Um, Developing uh, tools from the ground conservation, very much identifying habitats most at risk and working with people in country, including in the UK, on developing the best and most effective <coughs> methods of conserving and restoring those habitats. Um, banking the future of the plants most at risk, this is the Millennium Seed Bank project, uh, never intended as a doomsday vault. The Millennium Seed Bank is very much about bringing those species back from the brink of extinction where they have economic use particularly. So the, the 27,000 species that are in the bank currently have been selected because they are endemic, they don't occur anywhere else, they are endangered and they are potentially or actually of economic importance. The latest phase of work in the Lillium Seed Bank is working with crop wild relatives You've probably, if you're, if you're here this evening, you've probably also heard of the Svalbard project, which is concentrating very much on crop plants. We get 80% of our calories as a species from less than 10 species. In fact, we get about 50% of our calories from three species. And yet there are 30,000 species we know that are regularly consumed by our fellow humans across the planet. Um, and we know little about many of them and we don't know very much about a lot of the wild relatives of some of our key crop plants and yet the thing we do know is that the key to survival is genetic variability and so we need to keep that gene pool as open as we can and so making sure that we have access to that genetic material through crop wild relatives is a core part of the programme. Um, Restoring damaged habitats, this is the newest programme of work at Kew. It, there's always been a bit of this, but we have uh, taken on a new chair in restoration ecology, and that's a programme that we are building, um, particularly uh, working with, for example, mining companies, so that we go in and do conservation assessments before the disruptive work takes place, which means that we know 
how, what we're aiming to put back when that work has finished. Um, not everyone is happy with us because we work with mining companies, um, but uh, I'm sure you may ask me some questions about that later. Um, and if I can, I'll answer them. Um, growing locally appropriate species. This is one of the a superb um, program of work. Really, I can talk so glowingly about this because, of course, I don't do any of it. Um, these are people who are, are doing truly heroic things. One of my favourite stories is about the ngongo, which is a very highly protein-rich, nutritious nut. It grows in parts of Africa, has been a well-known forage food forever, uh, but nobody could grow it. No one could bring it into cultivation until the <coughs> seed bank scientists set to work on working out how to actually germinate these things and bring them into cultivation uh, and discovered that they needed exposure to smoke, not heat, uh, after which you could germinate them. So that, that is now potentially a crop tree that can be grown and harvested rather than <coughs> purely um, a highly nutritious food source which is only available for foraging, through foraging. Um, and then seven, this is where I come in. In, inspiring future plant conservationists, it should say. Um, I have a slightly um, dyslexic person putting the slide together for me, but um, I'm not going to complain, because a lot of work went into this slide. Um, but we are developing conservationists of the future. The seventh strategy is about inspiring through botanic gardens and getting a new generation in particular to understand both the wonder and marvel and the absolute necessity of plants in our world. Hence, things like the Great Plant Hunt, which is a project I was telling you about, which involved 23,000 schools. So what do people think of us? Well, very few people know very much about what I've just been telling you about. Um, we do a lot of research on our visitors, and in particular what they think about us. And this is um, a relatively recent piece of research that we did. I'm sorry, you're all going to have to kind of put your head sideways. Um, we asked... Our, our visitors, and this is an exit poll, relatively small sample, um, but they are people who had visited Kew in the last five years, um, as well as on the day when they were asked. And you'll see quite a high percentage of people um, regard it as a place of great beauty. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to meet the ones who didn't, frankly. <laughs> I want to know what, uh, what they're thinking if they don't find Kew beautiful, but then I am rather biased. Um, about half our visitors now do recognise that we are a leader in international conservation. But remember, these people have visited recently. If you were to ask these same questions of people who perhaps visited as a child or had visited in their past, they don't have that awareness of us at all. Um, and <coughs> the other rather nice thing is that quite a high percentage of our visitors do regard Q as inspiring and a place where they want to learn new things. Though I, I'm always aware that about 60% of our visitors do not come to Q to learn. They come to have a wonderful day out. Um, many of them come for quite spiritual reasons. They come to be in an open green space surrounded by beautiful living things and they do not want people leaping out and tapping them on the shoulder and saying, did you know? Neither do they want the place to be littered with signage and those people have just as much right to get what they want from the gardens um, as the people who do actually recognise that we are more than a garden. So an interesting tension. Um, how do we satisfy the needs and desires of all of these people who come to us and how do we tell people who don't come to us about the gardens? And in particular, how do we raise the profile 
of this part of our work? How do we increase the number of people who recognise that scientific endeavour is one of the reasons that Q is important? And of course, going forward, this is increasingly vital to the survival of organisations like Q. You know, we have, over the last 20 years, seen a steady decline in the percentage of government support for an organisation like Q, a trend which is definitely going to continue and may well accelerate. So if government is not funding an organisation like Q, and Q is fundamentally important to humans' understanding of plant diversity, conservation and sustainable use, other people are going to have to care more about what we do. And I often say my personal ambition is to have more people who don't listen to the archers care about Q. Because if you start looking at who comes to us, um, most of our visitors do come, as you would expect with any visitor attraction, they come from within an hour and a half of the gardens. Um, we do get a fair number of visitors from overseas, about 20%. Um, we get 12% who don't seem to know where they've come from. Um, and we get about 15% from beyond the UK and uh, about 10% from the rest of the southeast of England. Um, and of course, membership of Q is almost entirely in this segment of the visitation. Very important. These are people who are our, our friends and neighbours. They buy season tickets or membership to Q, and they come to us on average about five or six times a year. Terribly, terribly important. But this is not a sustainable model for growing the percentage of non-government funding to Q. What we need to do, if we're going to do that, is we actually need to grow an awareness of Q as a global conservation organisation, and we need a global membership. So membership of Q needs to go beyond simply a season ticket to visit a beautiful garden. And that's quite a challenge. And of course we can't do that purely through using the gardens. The other thing about our visitors is that they do tend to be older. It's very much an age and stage of life destination. People come to Kew at one of two periods in their, well, three periods arguably in their life. They either come as a child or a parent, or they come as an empty nester or grandparent. Um, people in between tend not to visit. So this age group is horribly underrepresented. The only way that people in that age group come to Kew is as a student. Um, and of course they're already a minority. Um, and if you, this, this graph of course is very misleading because this axis stops at 60%. So these percentages are actually quite low um, of the people who come to us who are not uh, the other thing about the, uh, about the visitation is that it is over 60% female. So women over 60 are actually our single largest demographic. So what are they coming for and what are we trying to offer them? Well, obviously we want them to have a fabulous day out. We want them also, though, to understand that plants matter and to give them a sense that Q matters and we want to build a relationship with Q and ultimately we want to build a lifelong partnership but as I say, we don't want that to be entirely dependent on living within an hour's travel time of the gardens and coming to us, even though those people are terribly important. So, what are we going to do? How are we going to use digital media 
to take cue beyond our physical visitors, to extend visits themselves as well, and to enhance visits. And this is the question that we are posing to ourselves, and I must give a credit here to Mike Saunders, who's our Director of Digital Media, who is remarkable and about without whom we, we wouldn't be able to even think about doing these things. So we're particularly interested in using personal technologies to enhance people's <coughs> understanding of plants. And when they're on site, I always think the gold standard is to walk around Kew with someone who really knows the place and knows when to shut up. Because walking around with someone who constantly burbles isn't a very peaceful and relaxing experience. But what you really want, as you walk through the gardens and something piques your interest, you want to be able to say, what is that? Why is it here? Why is it important? And similarly, occasionally, to point out to you, you know, if you, you, know, you might be interested in this, and we're looking for the digital equivalent to that, but we're also looking for something that can be used beyond the gardens. So, we're in an age of rapidly changing <coughs> technologies, and we have been for the best part of 30 years. Every time it looks like things might stabilise, of course they don't stabilise, they just start to change even faster. So, you know, there are people who will tell you the web is old hat, you know, what we're looking at now is a massive number of specialised little applications that, will that are designed, crafted, to give you something you want when you want it in your hand. Is the guide dead? We've been doing some interesting experiments at Kew. This is one that um, actually went very well with uh, a company called Node, a venture capital company, who designed a bespoke <coughs> piece of kit. Now, the image on that screen, I I'm sure I don't need to tell most of you in the audience, isn't entirely true to life. But actually, the resolution of those screens was extremely good, and most importantly, you could read them in bright sunlight. So they were a very, they were, and you, and you can see, they're very rugged, and they were very good at displaying high-definition media. So you could have lots of lovely video. And fortunately, because Q has had a long relationship, particularly with the BBC, we do have access to hours and hours and hours of wonderful video. There are three series of a year at Q, um, plus other footage shot around the gardens. So, for example, if you've come at a particular time of year when the plant you're interested in is not in flower, we can actually show you video of that whole annual cycle of that plant. So you can at least see it in situ and on video simultaneously. And you can hear the curator talking about it and where it came from and why it's there and so on and so forth. Um, people like them. They like those guides. We did um, a lot of uh, research and evaluation. And 80% of the people, and remember we, this is across the demographic of visitor. Um, they liked them. They, they wanted to use them. But we weren't convinced that that particular model was going to be sustainable going forward. The financial model of having people pay on entry for something when they're not even sure if they're going to use it, and then they go out into a 300-acre site, and by the time they get to the point where they think, actually, it might have been quite handy to have picked one of those things up at the door. There's no way they're going to go back and get one. 
Um, and when, on a busy weekend, you're trying to get 12,000 people through the door, you don't really want to be stopping them and explaining about the handheld video guide. So the financial model, the technology was great. Financial model, not good, not sustainable. So we're not persisting with the Q-Ranger. Um, lovely though it was. And this, you can just see here on the screen, it did all the sorts of things you would expect. You could have, um, you had a, an overlay of a map of Q, it would tell you where you were. If you asked it where something was, it would guide you to it. And it also had a nice little feature that um, if you passed a particular point of interest without asking about it, it would just say, are you sure you don't want to know about this? And you could just say, yes, I'm sure, thank you very much, and carry on. But it, it did do the little tap on the shoulder, which was, which was really rather nice. Um, but what we're looking for now is something a little bit am more ambitious. And this is an image from something called Street Museum. And you will recognise this is a, a kind of alternate reality in that you are standing there looking at this particular scene in London and you're seeing the historical overlay of how that scene looked in time. And you can imagine that you could actually cycle through series of images of that same scene and see how it had changed over time. Now, with the archive that we have at Kew of images of the gardens, we are well placed to generate that kind of alternate reality for the buildings, um, because as well as the people who come to queue for the plants, there are people who come for the heritage buildings and um, other elements of the, the landscape. They don't only come to see the plants. <coughs> so the capacity to be able to generate that kind of enhanced reality um, experience is quite um, great. There is an issue, though, which is how on earth do you put together and generate all of that content? And um, although we have a very good digital media team, they are a small team, and there is no way that they are going to be able to add in as much content as you would want to have across that many acres and that many specimens in the garden. I mean, we have, we have over 15,000 trees, never mind getting down to the small brown jobs, you know, you'd be there forever. So, of course, what we're going to have to do, and what we've started to do, is to rely on something that you might refer to as crowdsourcing, that we need people to add content to our content, to add value to it, and to add layers. One of the hardest things, I think, is actually creating a user interface that will give people access to these complex layers of data in a way that is actually usable by a normal human being on their day off. Um, and we're, we're mocking things up, and this one for me is still way too complicated. Um, and I suppose the metaphor works quite well if you're used to 3D immersive environments. Um, but as you may have guessed from our demographic, um, immersive gamers are not huge in our population of, of visitors yet. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, then it comes down to recommendations. I'll give you a minute to read that one. But if you're commenting, you know, we live in a commented world. And um, the interesting thing about inviting comment uh, is, of course, that you have to kind of take the comment warts and all. Um, we've had some interesting debates amongst the team. 
about how vivid the green ink has to be before we can legitimately not leave a comment on the site indefinitely. Um, but you know, in theory, if it's not inaccurate or abusive or in any way illegal, um, <clears throat> we should be leaving up the things that people say about us, whether they like us or not. So it is a slightly nerve-wracking business. Um, <clears throat> if you look at some of the comments on our website currently, um, you'll see we've had one or two issues. We've made some changes in the garden, always a risky business. Um, some people like them, some people don't like them. And some of the comments that are up there at the moment are you know, quite challenging, which I think is very good for us. But you can imagine an organisation like Q, this is a huge cultural shift to actually open up to that kind of commenting. Um, and uh, it, it's proving an interesting, uh, an interesting exercise. Um, that kind of recommendation, however, can be extraordinarily <coughs> powerful. These are um, screenshots and, and partial constructions from something called Every Trail. Um, and embedded in it are things which many of you will be familiar. Um, for example, you've got an overlay here on um, a map. It could be Google Map. It could be one of the other maps that you can have to a handheld. And people can leave comments and recommendations on particular um, items. If you, if you, I'm sorry, the slide is a bit crowded, despite the size of the cloud of this wonderful screen. Um, but here you've got this is a section of Barcelona. There are a number of sites in here where people have left comments. This one, for example, is for a restaurant. Um, now it could be that the restaurant has been put on the map by the owners of the restaurant. It could be that there are comments within here from people who are friends of the owner of the restaurant. How does one know? And this, this creates a, an, another interesting um, opportunity to begin to actually trace or create trails of comments that are according to your own personal likes or dislikes. So, for example, people may say this restaurant's wonderful, but how do I know whether they're the people who like the kind of food I like? Well, this is a nice um, project that's being run in Brooklyn where um, when you come to the gallery, they're actually trying to find out what sort of mood you're in when you come to the gallery. So, you know, if you've come to the gallery for solace, for example, you may find that you like certain parts, uh, certain images, certain pieces of artwork more than when you come in a joyous mood. And so here there are trails and, and recommendations based on the mood that the person was in at the time, which I, I mean, potentially quite fascinating, really. If you go and see that something that you really like and other people have been really quite grumpy about, and you discover it's because, in fact, they've come in when they're heartbroken, you know, you see, you can begin to see how you add colour and complexity to the information that is on offer to you um, through this kind of, of device. And for those of us, and I know some of you in the audience um, have been, like me, interested in mobile technologies for some time, this kind of thing finally takes us beyond the very worthy but actually not desperately exciting handheld museum experience, which is basically telling you things that would once have been written in a car on a card on the wall, but instead you've got a rather difficult to navigate mobile application that doesn't always work to get to the same information. 
I did get to a point where I felt if I read another paper about that, I might just have to lie down and die. Um, so how, how this, this idea of okay, tagging people, how they like me, and of course you get things like this is, this is something called GetGlue, and you actually build a reputation within GetGlue. Of course the best known um, application of this kind of, of system is in eBay, where you build up a reputation as a trader within eBay, and so people have some idea about whether or not you're trustworthy when they want to transact with you. This, of course, is a little bit harder um, because it's not just whether or not someone is trustworthy, it's whether or not somebody shares your interests. You know, if, something, if something is absolutely fantastic to somebody who is half your age, that might not be where you want to go. Um, you know, might be, on the other hand. I mean, it's, it's interesting, actually, the paper, we, we actually segment the gardens at Kew. The north end of the gardens is where the honeypot is, and that's very much the family-friendly area. It's where the play areas are, where the family-friendly restaurant is. Southern end of the garden, that sorry, the north end of the garden is where the honeypot is. The southern end of the garden is where the conservation area is, and there's a much more sedate restaurant and so on. And of course, people self-select. Um, and it's it's interesting if you if you venture out as I sometimes do into the garden, actually with my cue fleece on, that's quite nice because people come and talk to me. Unfortunately, they expect you to know things, which I don't always, um, but I usually know a man who does, or actually, at Q, I usually know a woman who does. Um, and they talk to you, uh, and particularly the people who come regularly, and they will often say quietly, I do love children, but not all of the time. <laughs> and so the people who don't want to be in the family area do tend to gravitate towards the area which is, which is quieter and, and more <coughs> serene. Uh, and they're able to do that. So if someone is recommending a part of the garden to you, you do need to know something about them because whether or not they like that part of the garden will depend very much on who they are and why they're there that day. So these kinds of rating systems are going to be important to us. But the, the most important thing to remember in all of this, though, is we beware stereotypes. You know, they are, we are dogged by stereotypes, especially around users of technology. Um, you know, I have to say, yeah, most of your audience and your regular visitors are women over 60. Don't even think about putting something on a handheld. You know, they won't know how to read it, or they won't know how to use it, and it'll be, you know, it'll be a complete disaster. Actually, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And these two ladies were typical. They took part in one of the early trials, a project that we ran with, uh, um, with the BBC, um, and one of the things they loved about it was the fact that they could watch video. They were, and they were using, as you can see, very early, um, not desperately smartphones. Um, and they were happy to watch video clips on these little screens. Because, of course, we're only talking about very short clips and very contextual clips. Um, but the, the service went down extremely well. The other thing they liked, of course, it was intergenerational. When they did bring, usually their grandchildren, into the gardens, it was something <coughs> they could do with their grandchildren. And we're very conscious of this. We do not want to create mobile experiences that alienate the individual and isolate the individual. We want to create mobile experiences which are shared experiences. We do have quite a few people who come to queue on their own, actually. And again, they tend to be members who come regularly, and they will come for a, for a, a very pleasant 
solitary stroll. But most of our visitors come in, in groups of two or more. And presumably they've come with that person largely because they would like some interaction with them. Yes, even when those people are their own children. And so they like things that they can share. And there are some neat tricks that you can do. One of the nicest ones I've seen, actually, um, uses multiple headphones so that you can all, you're all looking at the same screen, but you can all hear the, 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 the same audio. And that works very well, particularly in pairs. And our visitors are telling us that these kinds of opportunities are significantly enhancing their visits. Um, they like participating with it. Importantly, it is a service they are prepared to pay for, and the approval ratings, even for very simple services, are around about 85%. So we've definitely got a customer base there. Um, we're also exploring using these technologies and interpretive tools, particularly with youngsters. Um, and these kinds of systems are fairly tried and tested now. Um, they're not always desperately reliable, but essentially um, the youngsters are given quests they go out into the gardens to collect data, usually in the form of images, but also in text and audio clips. That information is put automatically into a web space that they can access when they're back at school and they can create um, a piece of work based on their visit. Um, and those are hugely popular. Uh, the teachers absolutely love them because they find that the children are much more focused on the task in hand rather than just running around and having a nice time because for once, hurrah, they're out of the classroom. Um, and we do get kids um, saying that they want to do more of this kind of work and they are very keen to work on the resources when they get back. Um, we are also now um, looking to, to trial some kind of... Um, enhanced reality um, application and we're hoping to do that in the next 12 months and that will be a blend of visitor generated and queue generated data uh, that will allow you to pick up information we're very much watching the growth in smartphone ownership um, because our current visitor base is heavily weighted towards the upper end of the socioeconomic spectrum, um, a higher than average number of our visitors do tend to have um, very powerful mobile technology. I was delighted to see so many of the phone companies now providing smartphones on pay-as-you-go tariffs, which means they're now more accessible to young people also. Um, so we're, we're watching that that. Um, shift very carefully. We do not want to be at the bleeding edge of these technologies, um, but we do want to make sure that when we have a user base, we've got something ready to offer them. Um, the problems that we are having, um, which again, anyone who's ever tried to set up one of these services will be only too familiar with, um, the location resolution of GPS, of course, in practice, is a long way away from the theoretical resolution. So GPS, geographic positioning system, satellites in the sky, they, they're what tell, you, uh, what tell your TomTom -tom or your Garmin where you are in your car. Um, in theory, you can get systems with a resolution down to less than a metre. In practice, it's very difficult to get them working. Again, if you've got a, a sat-nav in your car, you will know this. It's a bit lumpy. Sometimes it works really well, sometimes it doesn't work really well. Um, and we also have a slight difficulty currently in the gardens 
is that we don't have brilliant mobile coverage in the gardens, which is one of the things we're looking at. The other thing is, of course, that a Victorian cast iron glass house is a perfect Faraday cage, which means it's extremely difficult to get a signal in it. Um, so, and our glass houses are very big, so GPS within them, hopefully you would be able to find your way in and out of the glass house, but we could use GPS to actually locate individual sections of the glass house um, and particularly specimen clients. <coughs> so GPS, okay for getting you there and thereabouts, not brilliant if I actually want to tell you about this little plant over here as opposed to this little plant that's sort of 10 centimetres away from it. So we need something else when we get down to that degree of granularity. Um, business models are still challenging. Nobody has cracked this yet. Um, we're working with a major provider to experiment in this space. We've had a little bit of support from something called the Technology Strategy Board, um, set up by government um, to deliberately to give a little bit of um, seed corn funding to these kinds of private-public experiments, really, to see if we can develop new business models. Mobile ad advertising, probably not the answer. Online advertising, not a brilliant revenue model unless you've got a massive user base, um, which obviously we won't have in garden. Connectivity I've mentioned, smartphone penetration I've mentioned. Um, and of course one of the things that is, has really bedeviled mobile development up until this point is the huge number of platforms that have existed for mobile <coughs> um, devices. Um, we long ago shook down the PC world to the Windows and Mac um, sort of religions, virtually. I always think choosing an operating system is, is, a, is a, a, a theological thing, I think. Um, people worship one or the other. Um, but phones, at one point, there were over 200 equivalents uh, of an operating system on phones, and so to, to develop something for them was hopeless. Now, of course, with a smartphone we are seeing a coming together of those platforms because they will all allow you to deliver content through a web browser. And it's one of the things that the web has done is make that uh, a content provision more or less platform um, agnostic. Um, one of the things that we've been playing around with as well, because GPS won't give us the re resolution that we want, uh, we've been playing around with these visual data tags. Um, if you haven't seen these before, there, there's information in that pattern, um, and it's computer-readable information. And if you take a photograph of that with your phone, and you have the right little app downloaded, your phone can translate that into something that is human-readable. What we're playing with at the moment is... Um, web addresses, URLs. So that particular um, data matrix will take you to this web page on the Q website, which is the web page of everything you ever wanted to know about the Chilean wine palm. Um, so this is the label on the plant. You point your phone at the um, data matrix and click the button, and this comes up in your web browser. Um, very simple, very efficient from our point of view. Um, 
Do you want me to put that back if you're trying to actually photograph it? I'd be very impressed if you can get a sufficiently accurate picture of that to get the web page. I will be surprised and delighted. Um, and actually, seriously, one of the difficulties is that an awful lot of the cameras in smartphones, and I'm not mentioning any brands here, but in one of the most popular smartphones, the camera is not that great. So, it's very difficult to get a sufficiently high-resolution image of the data matrix to be able to make this work. But when it does work, it's quite cool. Um, and for, from our point of view, as a content provider, this is hugely powerful because we're generating it. In the absence of any other place to put this content, we are generating it in fairly standard mixed-media web formats. And so we want to be able to reuse that content as easily and labour um, uh, free ways as we can. So being able to go in to the web page about that particular plant and the way we're putting these together is that you can oops, you can find out um, everything Q knows about an individual species. This plant by the way is in the temperate house um, and it is the largest plant in a hop house anywhere in the world. Um, in fact, we've had to start taking the top out of it. I mean, clearly I'm not taking it, right. But the curators are up there taking the top out of this because it's in danger of pushing through the roof. Um, but it is a, it's a very fine thing. Um, and it's an economically important plant because the reason it's called a wine palm is it yields a syrup, not unlike maple syrup, actually. Um, <coughs> if you've been to uh, South America and you've had miel de palma, it's from this particular tree, but also it's fermented um, to make an alcoholic beverage. Um, the thing that's slightly unfortunate is that unlike maple tapping, where people collect the syrup from the trees year after year after year, um, the <coughs> custom has been the Chilean wine palms that you cut them down and just let all of the sap drain out of the tree. Um, which is much easier, and you get a lot, um, but it's not great for the tree. And they grow rather slowly, so it's not a very sustainable way of harvesting the sap. Um, then, so that, then we're also looking at very much more simple solutions for people who perhaps haven't got the web browser, perhaps don't want that much information, of actually delivering a cut-down version of the information to a smaller mobile device. This happens to be... Um, the information about the sweet chestnut, um, of which we have many beautiful specimens at um, Kew. But you'll see even in this trial that those of you with keen sight, we're also inviting people to text back a comment about the tree. One of the things that um, you'll find on our website if you're so inclined to go and have a look, we have something called the People's Arboretum. And we've invited people from all over the world to send us pictures of their favourite trees and to tell us why they are their favourite trees. And we, we actually use um, Flickr to host the photo libraries um, because we can't afford that kind of server capacity. Unfortunately, Flickr does it for us. Um, and then we just pull them in to the Kew website as and when. And we have some amazing libraries of images that people have contributed in that way. Um, a surprising number of the three images well, perhaps it's not that surprising, are actually at Kew. Um, 
But we also have the most amazing library of thousands and thousands of images of the Henry War <coughs> statues when they were at Kew. Um, and we have some extremely gifted photographers who come to Kew um, and are only too delighted to share their images. And we don't even offer them a prize. We offer them recognition. Um, and so we have a little team of people who every month decide which are their favourite images and those actually get pulled in and posted on a rotating basis actually on our site as opposed to us just pointing to them on the Flickr stream. The other thing that, that we're doing actually is we, we've got um, our YouTube channel is now consistently in the top 10 most viewed not-for-profit <coughs> YouTube channels. Um, so it, it, it's quite interesting. When it comes down to working out what the return on investment for Q is in this kind of media, it's really very difficult. And no one has yet perfected a model for working this out. There was a time when you could you put money into your website, you monitored the visitation to your website. It was never that easy to do, but more or less you could certainly work out whether traffic was going up or down, and you could work out what people were looking at, and you could get a sense of the value for your organisation of having a web presence. Now we're looking at a very different model where any organisation's web content will not be restricted to their own site. Um, and so it's very difficult to work out just how many people are seeing it, what they're thinking of it, and what it's actually doing to build your reputation and brand. So really um, very challenging, very exciting, but very challenging. So yes, of course, we, you know, we've got Twitter streams, we've got blogs, we've got our website, we've got our YouTube channel, we've got Flickr accounts, We've, we're inviting people to send us content, tell us what they think about us the whole time. How much of this are we actually getting through to people? How many people are we touching? We can make estimates, but it's very difficult to know. Um, although it's usually quite easy to see when you're upsetting people. Um, this, is, this is an even simpler solution. Uh, this is something that we did with the Henry Moores. Very traditional, but delivered through your mobile um, for a... Um, uh, it, well, it actually says here, you paid um, £1.50 and the service was then live on your phone and you paid through your phone. It was live on your phone for 24 hours. Each of the images in the collection, sorry, each of the sculptures in the, in the collection had a code number. If you texted that code number, you would then get uh, a download of an audio of people who actually knew what you were looking at, telling you what you were looking at and why it mattered. So that was an interesting one. And the, 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 th the bit about that I found particularly interesting is that you could come and look at the sculptures, you could then go away with the catalogue and listen to those downloads at leisure in your own home or wherever you want to listen to them. Um, this one, please respect these artworks and do not climb. This, this was actually the board next to these particular um, pieces. Um, this one is interesting. I have to say, until I got into the business of helping to run a visitor attraction, I had no idea how unintentionally destructive human beings are. But seeing people actually lift their children onto Henry Moore sculptures so they could climb on them was an education. So finally then, um, we reckon the future is pink. This is Himalayan balsam. You may, if you're a gardener, know this. It is, in fact, um, a very beautiful plant, but it actually has the status of an invasive alien. And so it's something that we want people to be able to recognise. 
And what we're working on currently, and don't hold your breath because it's going to be a while for a number of reasons before we can achieve this, but we're looking for um, an application whereby you don't point your camera at a, at a, a data matrix, you point your camera at a plant and it tells you what it is. Um, and I'm happy to discuss until you fall asleep why this is a very difficult thing to do, but I'm not going to say too much more about it. Partly it's because the actual diagnostic features of a plant that tell you for sure what it is are often not visible in the image. Um, so, for example, this happens to have flowers on it, which means you're halfway there. If this plant did not have flowers on it, distinguishing it from any other member of the Impatiens family would, uh, genus would be extremely difficult. Um, public value is service plus data. Remember, we are um, a government-owned organisation, even though increasingly not a government-funded one. Um, but we're very much about adding public value to what we do. And the way that this technology is going and the way the service world is going, it is about bringing together services and data. So I mentioned that Himalayan balsam is an invasive plant. People like the National Biodiversity Network are very interested in having citizen input to finding out where these invasives are and mapping them. And so this is one of their, it's not actually of Himalayan balsam, I don't think, but it, it is one of their distribution maps from um, the NBN. And these data will have to be collected by citizens at large. There are not enough specialists to do this. Um, and there is actually a very noble history of the amateur botanist um, making huge contributions to science around um, and botany. So it's it's a it's taking that um, service into the 21st century. So that's the end of my presentation to the minute, which is a miracle. I have to <laughs> um, but obviously, I'm very happy to take questions, and I think someone is kindly.
par excellence and updated. Um, because I, I find that trying to find things off the Q website, I, I might as well go to an American one. Mm. Um, I don't mean to be too critical, but... No, 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 I'm, I'm under no illusion. I mean, we are, all I can say is it's a work in progress. Um, and it's going, to be, it's going to be a long time before you're going to be able to pick any popular plant and get that kind of information. Um, we have, believe it or not, actually prioritised the plants that we get most inquiries from the public about, um, which was an interesting choice to some of my colleagues. Um, and we're not doing things like working systematically through an entire family before we go on to the next one, which is an anathema to many of my colleagues. Because um, we are, this is about feeding information to, to a, a broader public. We do have exposed through the website a number of specialist databases, but to be honest, the information in them is so specialist that whilst there are many, many hundreds of thousands of people who do access them in a year, they are also very specialist botanists. Um, and it, so there is a real challenge to actually take that very specialist content, put it together, and work it up into a form that is accessible to um, an interested uh, and often very well informed member of the public. Um, I have to say, if you're particularly interested in plants which are in cultivation for gardens in this country, currently um, you are more likely to find what you want from the RHS website than from ours. Um, because plants in that kind of cultivation are not our first priority. Um, and it is, it, it is interesting, I mean, we, um, we work very closely with the RHS, um, and, you know, a little bit like the Bath-Bristol relationship, there's a bit of sibling rivalry in there. But actually, we're not competitive with the RHS. We, we have quite different purposes. Um, the RHS are very much about gardening, um, and Q, of course, has some astonishing gardeners, but actually they're scientists first and foremost, um, and they garden because they want to maintain the living collection and find out how to grow those plants. And the, the beautiful garden is actually a byproduct of the science. Um, and be perhaps because they're scientists, it's a lot of the knowledge they have is not codified. So it's a question of having to go and extract that information about exactly how you cultivate that particular plant um, from the individual curator, um, that kind of information. So we have, got, we have got a long way to go, but we've made a start. Yeah, you can see some of my primitive efforts in this department, the pharmacology department. I try to choose plants which have uh, pharmacological you know, interests, such as aloe vera. Shall we? Shall we? Yeah, carry on. Great, okay. Go here and then come down here. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were sending out children into the garden with mobile devices, gathering data, yeah. um, as a way of learning about the plants in the garden. And I wondered if you were also able to use that data that all the various visitors were collecting to contribute towards the research um, We're not currently using data from um, from the public 
you know, I'm just casting. You have to be. The, the trouble with Q is it's so complicated that there's almost nothing about which you can say we've never done it. Um, but I can't think of anything currently where we are feeding data from the public into a research project. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's lots of possibilities, and and particularly for things like ecological surveys, the whole citizen science piece there is a is a large, um, huge possibility, but we're not currently doing it, um, for no other reason than than that I don't think we currently have any research projects where that would be particularly possible. Angela, do you think that it would be possible to use digital media to uh, change the demographics of the people actually come to Kew, both in terms of the age profile which you showed us and the uh, social and cultural background <coughs> which you didn't show us. Mm -hmm. uh, behind this question is the assumption that Q is interested in doing both those things. Mm. Um, to be honest, I don't think digital media is our, uh, offers our most powerful way of engaging with those audiences. Um, one of the things that I've, uh, you know, in my other persona that I've written about is the myth of the digital native. And I think we make, we make assumptions about young people's use of media at our peril. Um, I am... You, you don't have to look very far to find young people who are actually not either not that enamoured of digital media or not, and not that competent with it, and the two often go together. So the automatic assumption that if it's digital, it's a good way to engage young people, I think is um, fraught with difficulty. <coughs> also, um, the current assumption if you create digital, if you create uh, content and distribute it through social media, that you will automatically engage young people is also, I think, um, fraught with difficulty. For a lot of people, their use of social media is intensely personal, um, and particularly if you try and use it formally through school-based education, it's a real intrusion. Um, in fact, interestingly, a, a long time ago now, there was a very interesting study done in a North American university where they started using text messaging to communicate with undergraduates, and the undergraduates were absolutely appalled uh, they were very happy to get email from the university, um, but of course you have complete control over when you access email and whether or not you open a particular email, whereas of course a text message just jumps into your phone <coughs> unbidden. And although now most phones actually give you some information about that message before you open it, not very long ago you knew nothing about the message until you opened it. Um, so you could be in a completely inappropriate context and you get a reminder from your tutor that you have an essay due the next day. And surprise, surprise, not everybody welcomed it. So I think we do have to be very careful about assuming that, A, because somebody likes something, they'll like what you want them to like through that medium. Um, and, I th and I actually think we've done far more to engage young people through our Great Plant Hunt project, which is all about getting out there and getting your hands dirty. Um, and that the kids absolutely love it. I mean, there is a digital component. They can send us their photographs. They can become part of the online community for the project, and lots of people are doing that. Um, but actually, that's not why they love it. Okay. I'm going to accept one, one more question, because we're running out of time. Thank you very much for the interesting presentation. I was just wondering, uh, what are the, if you have 
explain why the learning objectives behind the use of this kind of technology, because from what you <coughs> talked about, it seems more like it is about providing information, providing facts to the visitors, and it is more about satisfying the customers. So I was quite interested to, to, to know, uh, for example, if you are thinking about uh, what can these technologies do in terms of developing um, individuals' critical thinking, or uh, developing individuals' interest in conservation? Mm. Um, we're very much trying to move away from models that purely offer information, um, particularly with anything that has got a vaguely formal learning element to it, um, and particularly for young people. So, for example, we've, we, have, we always have trails in the garden, and we've moved those from being... Um, slightly unkindly I describe them well yes we give them a trail which means walk to this point and read half this chapter of this book and then walk to another point and read the other half so we've turned them into something which we style as thinking walks inspired by Darwin's use of his sand walk at Down House um, Darwin walked to help him think and that's what we're encouraging the children to do and we give them a mix of some information and some questions and the questions they can discover responses to by observing what's around them in the environment. Um, those work well, and, and parents and carers particularly like them because they help them to engage with their children and engage them in conversations. And particularly if you can find a sufficiently intriguing question, um, then the parents and the children are looking for an answer together. Um, so we're very much looking at engagement, um, which, which I think is, a, for me, engagement is a deeper and more meaningful form of fun. Um, but it's not simply about feeding in information. Though I will, I, I will allow, currently, we're still much too far at that end of the spectrum. I think that's a great question to finish on. Thank mm -hmm. you. Um, I'm going to invite the Deputy Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, Dr. Danai Stanton Fraser, to propose a vote of thanks. Well, I'd really like to thank Angela for coming today. I think she's given us a really inspiring and engaging talk. I, I haven't been to Kew, and I really want to go now, so that's great. <laughs> and actually, you plugged one of our projects, which is even better. Stories of Kew, we were involved in with the BBC, mm. and BBC and BT carried out that project, and it was really... Great, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know your background from Bristol and I follow what you've been doing, but I haven't caught up on this work and I see Angela at quite a lot of meetings, but never get a chance to discuss any of this. And I, on behalf of all of us, I'd like to say what a great interdisciplinary talk she gave in respect that it, it hits on computer science in terms of digital technologies, sustainability and biology, and education, of course. And so I'd like to thank you, Angela, that's great. Thank, thank you very much. much.